This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Thank you for joining us for our latest podcast, Current Themes in Philanthropy. I'm very grateful to be joined today by two individuals who are immersed in the world of philanthropy, and they're both heavily involved in Philanthropy Impact, a charitable organisation working with advisors, philanthropists, charities and governments to develop greater expertise, awareness and impact in philanthropic action. Philanthropy Impact does this through the provision of resources, events and engagement opportunities to support and develop the philanthropy sector. At Charles Russell Speechleys, we are very proud to be a new corporate member of Philanthropy Impact and look forward to working with Philanthropy Impact to further its purpose and to enable us to help our philanthropic clients achieve their purpose. Our first guest today is John Pepin. John has over 20 years experience as a social entrepreneurial consultant, working internationally with over 300 charities, social enterprises, infrastructure support organisations and professional associations. And he is Chief Executive of Philanthropy Impact. And we're also joined today by Rennie Hall. Rennie is a partner and head of philanthropy at Seahaw & Co and is a trustee of several charities, including Philanthropy Impact, where he is also chair. Thank you both for joining me today to talk about some of the current themes in philanthropy. Over my 15-year career and involvement with charities and philanthropists, the way people give and the way charities interact with philanthropists has transformed. And the disruption to lives and economies throughout 2020 and 2021 as a result of the pandemic has certainly acted as a catalyst for change. I'm noticing that people are talking much more openly about philanthropy in a much more strategic way. Those who can are giving more strategically through charities and not-for-profits they have founded themselves so that they have control over the impact of their giving and direct involvement in the strategic use of their assets. Also, the range of options for philanthropists to consider has grown, with some, such as the Zuckerberg Chans, channeling funding through non-charitable structures rather than adopting the traditional charity route, perhaps to ensure that they are not constrained by regulators and charity law, which can be restrictive. So my first question um, is, what in your view is the most significant shift in the way in which philanthropists are currently approaching their giving? John, I'll come to you with that question first. Philanthropy Impact's mission is to increase philanthropic giving, social investment and impact ESG investment. Uh, our focus is to work with professional advisors to high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals, but we also have as part of our network philanthropists, impact investors, foundations, trusts, and, and charities. And when I respond to your question, um, uh, it's related to the training that we do, the resources that we provide to uh, uh, philanthropists and, and their advisors, but also the um, events and magazine and platforms that uh, we uh, support as a catalyst. Um, the shift, I think, is, is some really interesting things are happening today. You sort of did a quick summary in your introduction. One of the shifts, I think, is the growing convergence between uh, philanthropy, social investment, and impact ESG investing. And that people are looking at this from a perspective of living their values, what, uh, what their motivations are, what their ambitions are. 
And uh, so there's a movement and an intersection uh, around those. So it uh, depends on the jargon you use, but that's sustainable investing. Uh, there's other shifts that are taking place. There's a movement and growth in donor advice funds. There's a, been a tremendous growth in data platforms connecting uh, philanthropists with uh, potential projects. The role of professional advisors is shifting considerably, and Renee can talk a bit about that and some of the brilliant things that they're doing. And the other shift, I think, is around the role of women of wealth and millennials um, and how they're changing the whole nature of the way professional advisors uh, relate to them, but also uh, how they approach uh, their investments and their philanthropy. Thanks, John. There's there's a lot um, a lot of, of, of emerging trends and, and to cover there. Um, Rennie, is there anything there in particular that you um, would like to talk more about? Yeah, I think I think that there's an excellent bit of scene setting there from from John and probably from philanthropy impacts point of view, the position it's in to see these deep trends and, and be really. Uh, embedded inside these these areas of expertise means that it sees things as they change um, which which is fantastic the the stuff that i've seen certainly through our customers and what we as a family are doing um, is this time together of both the grant making and investments so when you think of the opposite situation of of tying these things together, it would be where you have a set of really considered grants where you're doing good, you've got trustees thinking about how do you help end beneficiaries, how do you help stakeholders, and then you have a set of investments that possibly through the way they're invested, the negative effects of them, whether that being humans, human right issues, or whether that being environmental degradation, actually outweighs good that you're doing with your grant giving. And so this, this idea, this concept of grants doing good alongside investments doing good, uh, some, something we call total portfolio impact, certainly seems to be a rising trend. And when thinking about people in their 30s who are involved with family foundations, beginning to get much more involved with philanthropists, they're very infrequently calling themselves philanthropists now. They're calling themselves impact investors and they're thinking about the full suite of assets that they can bring to bear to help solve problems. So that that is certainly a huge emerging trend and I think very exciting to wrap your mind around people trying to use different bits of capital in different ways. I think absolutely on the other side, the emergence of donor advised funds is a very good way of executing on this desire to be flexible, to use investments in different ways, and also to be involved with charitable giving across a whole different spectrum of interventions, rather than just being tied to a specific set of charitable objects. Could I add a couple of things? Um, uh, one is that uh, Sarah, going back to what you were saying in the introduction uh, around the realization that more people should get involved in philanthropy, uh, but a year and a half ago before COVID, the median gift for high net worth and ultra high net worth was 4,000 pounds. 
So that meant the wealthiest people, half of them gave less than 4,000 pounds a year. But if we look back about four or five years ago, it was running less than 500. So there's a growth, but there's also anecdotal evidence that there's been tremendous growth since that 4,000 was in, but we don't have the latest number. The other aspect of this and what we're spending some time working on in addition to training professional advisors to support their clients on their donor journey, um, or I guess I should say their impact journey now, impact investor journey, uh, is um, um, the changing role of major donor high value fundraisers. Um, they, we constantly forget that they play a major role in increasing giving, um, but uh, there are key issues about uh, what they do and how uh, sometimes some people are alienated by some of the approaches. So we're providing training to deal with, with that so that they shift from uh, looking at donors as donors, but as, as clients and meeting their client needs first. It's a ma massive shift in, in culture and behavior that we're trying to do there. Um, uh, as along with the change in the role of professional advisors. Thank you, both of you. That's, that's all incredibly um, interesting. As you will both know that in the UK, charity law is, is devolved and the landscape about what it means to be a charity and what it means to, to be a philanthropist does vary, um, both within the UK, but also incredibly so when we're thinking about it from an international point of view. Um, do you see any emerging trends or interesting developments in philanthropy around the world that you think will um, eventually make their way to the UK in due course or, or things that look of interest that you hope, hope will do? Um, I guess a couple of things. Um, uh, the uh, UK is one of the leaders in, in the world around, around philanthropy and combining social investment with impact investing. Um, so there's, I, I remember a few years ago, um, I was uh, in Thailand and Indonesia um, supporting the growth of social entrepreneurs, which included uh, going on rock radio to reach out to young people, but also running master classes to how they grow it. And it was really interesting because uh, the issue was learning from what was going on in the UK, uh, but adapting it to local culture. The other uh, uh, emerging trend is more family office involvement. Um, I was on the call uh, uh, yesterday to some people in Singapore and uh, the growth in family offices and what they're doing in, in Asia is quite phenomenal. And it's, it's a well-developed area as well in, in uh, Europe. Um, there's an, another issue that's um, a trend that's growing. Uh, it's addressing the power imbalance between funders and recipients of funds. And you'll see that um, uh, people like Isa Bosch in, in Germany is doing transformative philanthropy, which involves um, the uh, uh, recipients in the whole process. Um, you'll see that uh, Renee can talk about the fact that they focus on unrestricted funding, which again, deals with that whole thing. Uh, so it's really quite interesting. Um, uh, cryptocurrency is, is probably going to increase, but I think there's issues around that, so um, it's hard to tell where that's going to go. There is a, also a, a trend coming out of uh, Switzerland and, and around trying to deal with trust 
that young people have been uh, given and uh, control issues around uh, how much control they have, uh, whether they can get the trust to look at impact investing versus just normal investing and stuff. So that's that's going to be, I think, a growing issue. Um, and um, of course, there's a growing approach to impact investing and uh, uh, growth uh, around that. Um, and um, the focus of a lot of, of philanthropists and investors now is around longer term uh, being impact led. Picking up on that unrestricted funding point, it, it is really important to think about how you form partnerships with charities, how you, how you can really enable them. And I, I think people are hopefully moving away from having very, very prescriptive reporting requirements and having very restricted allocations of where their money is going to. Um, certainly for us as a, a charitable trust, so we have the Golden Bottle Trust, which runs alongside the bank and receives up to 10% of the bank's profits each year. Um, we are looking for charities that we can form partnerships with, that we can really back the management and that we understand them sufficiently to form a long-term relationship where we then trust they will allocate the funds out um, in the way that's the best for the charity. And if, if you find yourself in a situation where you're second-guessing the charity, where you're really, really directing where the money should go to, you've probably found the wrong charity. And there are 168,000 charities in the UK. You shouldn't be tying these people up in knots. You should be searching for someone you can, you can really trust. I think that the only other thing I'd, I'd point to as a trend, and it's not, it's nascent and it hasn't developed fully enough yet. Um, which is the use of the sustainable development goals as measurement tools. And this is a, a framework that is signed up to by 195 countries around the world. It's massively embedded into different bits of reporting, but I think it would help pull catalytic philanthropic capital out of being tied in the national reporting systems into something that can really help solve these global problems. And I think if we're serious about addressing things by 2030, the use of a global standard for impact reporting and directing funds, I think is a, a very, very important component. Thank you both. Um, just going back to the, the comments about unrestricted funding as a, as a charity lawyer and, and, and dealing with both sides, so dealing with charities um, when they're being provided with grants and their pushback in terms of how they might be being required to spend those grants but also individual philanthropists who want to apply restrictions um it's music to my ears that, that there, there's, a, there's a growing trend for unrestricted funding because it's really it, it, charities do need to have that freedom to apply funds where they're most needed and that might even be to cover the dreaded administration costs that everybody um, tries to avoid their donation being used to cover because at the end of the day if there's no if there's, if there's no employees for the charity that the charity's not going to be able to achieve very much and every organization especially complex organizations like many of our charities do have unfortunately overheads that just simply have to be covered for them to do all the wonderful things that they do john one of the questions i am 
often asked by my clients at the beginning of their journey to become philanthropists is how to take a strategic approach. I think perhaps already in some of your answers, you've, you've, you've touched on some of the points you might raise here, but um, what in your view are the hallmarks of, of good strategic philanthropy? We have another hour. Um, and the, uh, I, uh, there's, uh, it's, there's a lot, and, and it's a confusing area for someone who's just starting their philanthropy. Uh, um, and uh, I think it's really important that they think about getting advice. They wouldn't start a business without getting some advice. And it's, there's no difference in, in the two other than the fact that one is looking for some financial return, the other is looking for impact. Um, but it's important to understand uh, uh, and get support from their professional advisors um, that um, there are 23 distinct services that a philanthropist needs on their daughter journey. And it ranges everything from uh, implementation uh, planning, implementation, and monitoring and reviewing. Um, and um, it's important for advisors and for uh, the philanthropist to understand that they may need a variety of different services and to work on that. Um, there's also, we have developed a thing uh, called an investment return continuum that looks at uh, the context from philanthropy, venture philanthropy, social investment, impact investing, ESG investing to normal investing. And it's really important for them to understand that continuum because it helps them to sort of place where they want to put their emphasis uh, on. So that's an important uh, learning thing for them. The other is to be really clear about one's values are and what they want to accomplish, what their motivations are and ambitions and then how they uh, uh, understand that and convert that into a vision and ultimately goals. And then as Rene says, contextualizing those goals and actions within an SDG context and the continuum. Another question, so you see there's a lot of work to do before you start this. It's not something that's really simple. Um, another is how are you going to involve your family um, and, and deal with the multiple generations and the differences between the multiple generations, which is not easy. And of course, there's different structures, there's different approaches to a philanthropic giving uh, that we've touched on a bit around unrestricted funders and others. And then it's important to do further research, meet with other donors, get specialist advice, um, and then start to develop your strategy, uh, your tactics, your plan, and your budgets and stuff. Um, and then I guess one of the key issues, which I think is difficult and causes some problems, is learn how to select a cause and a charity. So there's due diligence of the, of the charity, collecting basic information on how to do that, looking at governance, looking at how they deal with the risk, uh, whether they're innovative, what their culture is, um, what the impact is, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, a real complex set of of, of areas for them to look at. And sometimes they'll want to do it themselves um, and other times they'll want people to do it for them, but they should have support from their professional advisors through this process because it decreases the risk, decreases the potential for failure. And professional advisors should really get their act together um, and um, really give that support. Um, uh, and I know Renee and, and his um, uh, bank, they provide that, but, uh, but it's really important that uh, advisors support their clients on their donor journey. Plus, it's good for the advisor's business. 
Thanks, John. I think one of the things I find quite difficult when I'm helping clients is when they're not really sure exactly what their motivations are and they haven't really thought about what their goals are and they haven't started that process of really trying to think about what they want to achieve. And I think I think having those conversations and, and doing that background research is so important um, before they get too far into the the structures and how and how they're going to achieve. Yeah, and one of the things that we do is for our corporate members is that um, if if they're going into a situation or if they have a situation, we're happy to sit down um, and have a conversation to either help prepare them or if uh, necessary, we can have a conversation with their client just to get them started and, and stuff. We, uh, we're, we're, we don't give the long-term advice, but we can certainly uh, get them started. Thank you. And, and Rennie, do you have anything further, um, any further observations on, on, on what John's just um, mentioned? So I, th- I think the only thing I'd add is that huge amounts of work can go into putting in place what you want to kick off with. Have a, don't think that then the job's done. I think it's it's worth checking back in, making sure that it is doing what is expected. And um, as as a family in 2018, we went through quite a big exercise to look at were our grants, was our direction of activity actually matching up what we cared about? And so we profiled each of the family members involved with the charity, charitable trust to see what we cared about and created an amalgamated um, profile to say, this is the stuff that's important to us. We then compared it with our bottom-up organic grant making and saw the actual impact we were having. So that mismatch between desired and actual impact actually completely changed the way we we went about giving. We carved out an extra third of um, our funds to go towards just 10 grants and we came we became much more laser focused on on the big amounts of money that we were giving and so that that was a really exciting process to go through but the golden bottle trust has been up and running since 1985 so yes it's great to put the things in place right at the beginning but don't think that that's it it's done it's it's definitely worth recalibrating and checking back in to make sure you're doing what you expect i guess there's a, another thing to keep in mind is build on your strengths uh, so i'll take an example dame stephanie shirley who was uh, one of the first um, women uh, it entrepreneurs um, back um, well, 40 or 50 years ago um, and uh, she was an entrepreneur um, and so what she did when she sold her business is um, uh, uh, she gave away, I think, over 20 years, 68 million. But what she did is she took an entrepreneurial approach um, and acted as a catalyst for change and uh, applied those skills. And she was very happy doing that, but she was also very impactful in the approach she took. So really important to know yourself and build on your strengths. No use trying to do something that uh, isn't of interest to you. There's certainly a COP26 effect happening on the ground um, amongst the founders of, of new charities at the current time. The investment required to meet global climate goals will simply not be met by public funding. And we do need a significant mobilization of private wealth to support innovative climate solutions. 
Are you both seeing interesting um, developments in climate philanthropy at the moment? It's funding for climate is at the lower end of the spectrum of giving, it's near the bottom, and that has to change. Um, uh, there's um, a need for more philanthropic giving and stronger partnerships between philanthropists, government and impact investors, because all three are going to play a role. We're taking a number of steps to raise the awareness amongst professional advisors and, and others. So our board sees it as, as a priority issue. We've had events in Walking My Shoes Up, which are on YouTube, magazine articles to get out to our networks. We have are involving millennials and women of wealth in, in our processes. We're creating a special web page for our new web location, uh, but uh, to look at issues, uh, to encourage, etc. And we're developing, uh, you know, I mentioned the spectrum of investment return. Well, in the spectrum of capital, we're developing options within that uh, as part of the educational uh, process. There are issues around greenwashing and carbon offsets. There are, uh, there is a transition to net zero and the role of philanthropists can play in that. So, uh, for, uh, uh, for example, on a, com on a community level, um, there's an, uh, potentially a need for funds to uh, develop approaches to net zero. Um, and um, uh, there's also the issue which we've been doing a lot of campaigning around is harm versus good. And so you have a charity or philanthropist or someone who's, who's uh, giving away money to do good, but they may be investing in um, um, things that may be undermining the good. Um, so we're trying to uh, get people to shift to impact investing, but then you have to deal with issues like greenwashing and others. Rennie, I know that you are particularly interested in mentoring the next generation of philanthropists. Are you seeing climate as something that the younger generations are particularly interested in? Uh, absolutely. I, I think there's, there's a huge focus on climate, on actually mental health is another huge area that people are focusing on. And, and sometimes there's a fusion between those two areas. It's, but climate in general, I think from, from UK trusts and foundations, just over 5% of funds goes towards the environment. So it's really not enough. There's big pushes at least to move it up to 10%. But these these are things which absolutely need to get embedded now. And there's there's a real need to move at speed. And so I'm not not quite seeing the desire that people are saying uh, that they would like to be involved with environmental causes actually matching up with funding which is which is quite an interesting um quite an interesting issue one of one of the other things about it which may be a barrier to mobilization is that there is no one silver bullet you do need to go into a whole multitude of different areas to be effective and so we're see, seeing people doing what uh, we've termed ecosystem granting so going across a whole spectrum of different climate related charitable initiatives so that they can build out a better understanding but also with the realization that the the environment is an interconnected system so you have to solve a number of things simultaneously to be effective this this will take the form of looking at peatland seagrass 
rewilding agroecology all in one lens of of grant making rather than just doing it through we are, we are only going to operate and focus on one thing which for philanthropists is certainly quite a big jump because usually they become experts and absolutely laser focused in on one thing well in environmental grant making there certainly can be a strong case made for being involved with quite a few different areas to make the impact that you desire i think that's one of the points you made is really important about the um, uh, tie to mental health um, because of course climate um, and climate issues everything from floods right through are going to affect people's mental health um, and so the two are, are highly, I think, highly interrelated. Absolutely. As you will both be aware, there is a call at the moment for the government to appoint a philanthropy commissioner um, to make the case for greater philanthropic giving in the UK. Do you think there is more that needs to be done in the UK to create an enabling environment for philanthropy? I think there's a lot to be done. Um, the commissioner is a good idea. Um, but you have uh, different uh, government departments that play different roles. And I think that um, uh, we have been putting forward, and one of your colleagues with me, uh, Simon Vile, we've been putting forward to HMRC and to the Treasury, uh, setting up something like a charity remainder gift, which uh, instead of just legacies, it means people give money during their lifetime, uh, as well as when they die. And we think that would uh, be an excellent way of, of getting more people to give during their lifetime. Um, and it's set up not just for all high net worth, high net worth, but also mass affluent. I think that there's issues around like the social investment tax relief, which the government has uh, now said will be stopping uh, in a while. That has the potential of, of connecting mainstream investment with uh, social investment. And you see a group like Resonance who's been doing something along those lines. And, and so there's a need for an equivalent of that kind of thing. Uh, so there's tax relief. And then I think there's a need to address the barriers to giving um, and why um, uh, uh, a tremendous amount of money uh, uh, that could be available for gift aid is not being dealt with. Uh, but uh, the barriers to giving have to do with uh, 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 lack of control about how donations work. Um, there's a whole issue around um, uh, media and negative media around charities and uh, a perception of efficiency and that kind of thing. Um, so there's, um, I think the, I mean, I came from Canada 21 years ago and we had a really nice balance between uh, the state and um, the um, uh, philanthropy. Um, and here, uh, there's still some people, I think, that think the state should be doing everything when the two should be working in partnership. Um, the state has a responsibility because it deals with the whole of the country to help set priorities, but philanthropists and others sh should be supporting and helping in that process. And then uh, in terms of determining priority, but also uh, delivering on those priorities. If you could choose um, one change in policy, John, to support philanthropic giving, if you could choose just one, um, what, what would it be? Well, I think it's more complex than that. We submitted a, a paper. We, uh, as you know, we have a public affairs committee that's composed of 
of our corporate members and so uh, lawyers, etc. And um, we took a look at um, uh, the principles that should underpin that uh, uh, the tax thing. We also said there should be innovations like that I mentioned, but then we reviewed and critiqued every tax relief there was. I mean, I'm happy to send you the paper. Um, it's a tiny bit out of date, but uh, if you want me to send that to you, I'm happy to do it. So I, I think it's more complex than just one thing. Thanks, John. Um, we'll include a link um, to that paper with the, with the show notes to this recording. And Rennie, is there any, I, I completely appreciate that it is very complex and it's very hard to choose one thing um, that might support philanthropic giving, but what's the, what, what in terms of main priority um, do you see? So I actually think this, this concept of total portfolio impact and how it gets embedded is really fundamental to making sure that all of the assets that are inside charitable trusts and foundations are aligned to be making the biggest public good. And so one of the things that Philanthropy Impact has been pushing on and, and helping with over, over the last year and a half is how sustainable investments are viewed by the Charity Commission, how, how it's articulated in advice to trustees. And I think creating a, the most accommodating backdrop for sustainable investing, impact investing is a hugely powerful motivator and enabler in allowing these charitable funds, these charitable um, assets to be as useful as possible in solving the big global challenges that are out there. And I think there's still some way to go. So if I'm, I was waving a magic wand, that, that would be where I'd focus, focus my attention. Thank you. And absolutely concur with, I think, in terms of impact investing in charities, there's a lot of confusion still and a, and a, a lot that needs to be done there to clarify how charities can do that. Um, and that's something that certainly should be a priority and hopefully something that we'll, we'll get a lot more clarity on sooner rather than later. Thank you both. Um, I've come to the end of my questions. Very interesting and insightful discussion. And I hope others that listen to this podcast find it equally as interesting and insightful. So thank, thank you very much. Oh, uh, thanks. And I hope it's been helpful. And thank you very much for having us. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.